Hi, hello, and welcome. This is the Zonecast, where we interview emerging Canadian professionals, entrepreneurs, and academics. And uh, today we have with us on the show uh, Donnie Oyoung. He is the founder and CEO of uh, Blackheart. Uh, hi, Donnie. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Yeah, I'm definitely curious to learn about uh, Blackheart. Uh, let's start by talking about your uh, background. So can you tell us about your professional and personal background? Sure. Um, so I was born in China. I came over to actually the United States first when I was six, and then eventually over here to uh, to Canada. And Blackheart is actually my second startup. So I had a company before called Reku. It was an on-demand online tutoring company. Um, that I started while I was in college. Um, so I ran that for about four or five years. Um, and after that company, I took on a position at a local VC firm called uh, Caravan Ventures as a, a product manager. I worked in product, helping portfolio companies with um, with growth and product. And while I was there, I always knew I was going to get back into entrepreneurship. So um one and a half years in at Caravan, I came up with the idea for Blackheart, and here we are. All right. Um, before we get into Blackheart, I'm curious. So you said you initially moved to U.S. from China, and then you uh, came to Canada. So can you tell us what brought you to Canada? Well, I mean, I didn't really have much choice in it. It was my I was six years old, and my parents um, immigrated over to Rhode Island, actually. Uh, for about a year before we moved up to Canada and became Canadian citizens. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, they've tried to find a better life for me and eventually my sister. Um, so I'm very, very glad that we've kind of got exposed to the, the Western world and the North American kind of culture. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So, uh, yes, can you tell us about Blackheart and uh, how the idea came about? Sure. I remember very vividly, actually. Um, I was working at my, my job bef- at that time. This was back in 2017. Um, and I had bought this pair of black shoes online um, that arrived and looked nothing like it did online. It, it hurt my feet. It didn't fit well. It was really ugly. And I ultimately forgot to return it. So I had this pair of useless black shoes for $120 in my closet um, that I couldn't return and just a really bad experience, a bad taste in my mouth. And I realized at that time that it's not an experience that only I experience. A lot of people have that same pain point. So I decided to kind of create a solution around that specific problem. Um, and the original idea for Black Card is very different than what it is today. We were B2C before, so it was a, a Chrome extension that people would install and they would be able to then have access to 50 different brands where they can try before you buy from. And it was very low tech, uh, very MVP. I had bought a, a a stack of second market gift cards at 20% off and we made arbitrage money. So we would pay on behalf of the customer and if they kept something, then I made 20%. That was the original business model. 
not the most scalable thing in the world. Um, later then, um, we were also in logistics. So the products, whenever someone placed an order, we get those shipments sent to my house and I'll do the pickups and deliveries myself. And um, actually I had a co-founder at the time, Miraz. He, I was using his car to uh, make these pickups, make these deliveries. And once we are able to actually talk to the customer, we try to get feedback and try to improve the product. But that was very much version one of Blackheart. Um, moving on from then, uh, about a year ago, we shifted over to B2B, which is what Blackheart is today. So now, um, instead of working directly with consumers, we integrate directly with the merchants themselves into their, their storefront. Uh, it's a separate button on the product display page. Underneath Add to Cart will be Try Before You Buy. And once we're integrated, the, the merchant's customers are able to pick out items, get them shipped to try on at home for free, and only pay for what they keep. This I see. So the idea is that uh, the consumer can order um, a number of items, and then they can return some of the items that they don't want. That's right. And, and we're trying, to, uh, we're and, trying and, to, uh, sorry, we're, we're trying to uh, kind of mirror the brick and mortar shopping experience and bring it online. Because if you go into a, a Nordstrom or a Gap, uh, a physical brick and mortar store, um, you're not expected to kind of pull out your credit card, pay for the five jeans that you want to try, and then get a refund on the four that didn't fit you. We want to kind of mimic that same experience, but for online e-commerce. Mm -hmm. That's pretty interesting. So let's say if I, um, you, you work with like online retailers and uh, if I have to, let's say, get um, some items, at what point do I pay? Do I pay before uh, when I receive, before receiving them or do I pay after I've, tried and I want to return what I don't want, at what point does the cons consumer pay? Sure. Uh, the customer typically gets five days after delivery to try and decide if they want to keep or return any of the items in their order. And as soon as they make that decision, uh, that's when they pay. So they don't pay until they've had a chance to try it on for five days and um, decide that this is the right one. This is the right product for me. Okay, so after they've received the shipment, they have five days to try and decide what they want to keep. And then at the end of five days, they can they can pay online. That's right. Okay, so I can imagine from a shipping perspective, this could be costly for the online retailers, uh, sending a bunch of items and then making it uh taking it back so there is like some definitely some two-way shipping happening here um so who, who's take, taking that shipping cost are you charged uh, is the consumer charged for the shipping cost or is it built into the product prices uh how how does that work this typically this is something that the merchant can decide 
what they want to do. Um, they have a lot of flexibility around the cost and the cost structure. Typically for our merchants, the merchant pays for shipping both ways. So if there is a return, there really is no risk for the end consumer. We, when, whenever there is a try before you buy type of model, it's expected that returns will increase. That's a realistic concern. Um, mm -hmm. The bet is that you know, because of the increase in conversions and the increase in average order value, um, it offsets the cost pretty you know, substantially in a sense that the customer ends up keeping more. Um, and because of that, the merchants make more money um, when you look at the bottom line. Mm, so I guess I guess because you're trying to, you know, narrow the gap between online and retail shopping experience, um, the hope right. is that without the merchant having to charge extra for shipping, uh, just through the regular prices of the products, I guess I guess as you said, the average price of the order and more conversions might help pay for the shipping costs. That's right. See if. If you look at the actual numbers themselves, the you know if you go into a brick and mortar store, the average conversion rate is thirty percent that you'll walk out with a purchase, whereas online it's hovering between two point four to two point five percent. So there's a massive gap. Um, there's a lot of customer acquisition costs that merchants, e-commerce merchants, are kind of spending to to try to acquire customers, but people are just not converting online. And the biggest reason why people don't um, shop online is because of uncertainty around look or fit, which is specifically the, the problem that we're addressing with the try before you buy solution. So uh, I'm guessing you work specifically with the uh, uh, online retailers who are selling uh, clothes and shoes? Most of our merchants today are, about 75% are selling apparel. Um, but it's not exclusive for apparel. So we've, you know, just last week we signed a merchant who sells golf clubs online. You know, you want to be able to feel the weight of the, the club in your hands before you make a purchase decision. Uh, we also have wigs, merchants, rings, jewelry, glasses, electronics. It's not exclusive for apparel, but most of it today is, is apparel. Mm -hmm. So I guess one thing that I'm trying to understand is, um, how how does your solution help uh, help the uh, online store because let's say if an online store wants to offer this kind of service you know um, can they do it themselves or or can can they not do it themselves or is there any particular value that your solution is bringing to their existing online infrastructure maybe do you, do you have like uh, some kind of process to i guess figure out what is more suitable for the customer in terms of size or fit. Um, like if you can talk more about how your, how your solution uh, blends with the online store and the specific value it adds. Yeah, for sure. So there's three specific value propositions that we give to merchants. The number one is delayed payments. So right now, for example, in Shopify, there's no mechanism for merchants to be able to charge customers post checkout. Um, so there's, there's no solution around that right now that they can implement themselves. We come in and allow them to, you know, be able to charge customers right when they need to be charged. And this can either happen, you know, 
if it's if a customer doesn't take action within five days after five days, or they take action within that five days and decide I want to keep these items, that's when we charge. So we provide that payment mechanism. Number two is our fraud model. So we spent maybe two to three years building a um, fraud AI specific for try before you buy, just because you know the customers are not paying upfront when they're placing orders. And because of that, there is a lot of fraud that happens. For us, mm-hmm. we've incorporated this um, this model that scores the the risk of every single transaction in real time, and we're so confident in it that we'll guarantee that transaction. So that means that if there is a fraud event, if a customer does not pay at the end of the day, we'll pay on behalf of that customer to the merchant. So the merchant never has any risk for fraud. Um, so that's number two. And then number three is the data piece, which you touched a little bit on. Um, for us, it's it's we're in a unique position where we can get keep rate data back to the customers, back to the, the merchant on a per SKU level in a confined timeframe. Um, and this is useful for inventory decisions and marketing decisions. So what that means is, you know, if you look at a regular e-commerce order flow, you don't, the merchant doesn't get um, keep or return data until maybe 45 days or 60 days after it's been delivered to the customer, the customer sends it back to the warehouse, the warehouse processes it, and then, then they update their internal sources to say, okay, this product has been returned and this product has a really high return rate. Therefore, we shouldn't you know, stock up on this product. For us, because the, the timeline has been kind of condensed so greatly, we can get that data back to merchants within eight to 10 days so that they can you know, rapidly be able to make decisions on um, inventory, decreased waste, and um, also their marketing decisions can uh, push some products more so than others. Mm-hmm. So I guess this guarantee that you're providing the online stores that you will uh, that black card will pay if the consumer doesn't pay. That sounds uh, risky and costly. Right. Yeah. Most of our cost of goods sold is tied to tied to this the fraud model. And and how much uh, uh, how much how often do you see defaults from customers who take stuff but uh, don't pay or maybe they don't return it? Uh, how often do you see that? Well, this is this is something that changes. I mean, at the very beginning, it was pretty bad. Um, I think we've seen an upwards of 20 to 30% of all transactions being fraudulent at one point, at the very beginning when we were targeted. Obviously, we've gotten a lot better with that now. Um, so right now, it's, it's less than what we charge merchants. So hovering around 1%, less than 1%. No way. So from 20 to 30%, it went down to 1%? Yeah. When we were initially building out, um, we hired this professional social engineer scammer where his entire day job is to kind of defraud sites like ours, like uh, Trunk Club, like Stitch Fix. Um, And he would charge people money to (laughs) scam. Um, So we, we hired him and there's apparently a, a whole community of people like this. We were, um, we were targeted 
So that was a, a very good learning experience for us to really quickly improve our fraud model and kind of um, add all the signals that are necessary to, to, be, to be solid. So, so yeah, can, can you do, talk about how this AI works to prevent uh, fraudulent transactions? Like, does it prohibit certain people from making a purchase or getting stuff? Uh, and how does it how does it identify uh, fraudulent customers? Um, I don't know how much detail I can go into, but we we take a look at a whole bunch of different signals. So most of it is behavioral signals. So one example is uh, if, for example, the customer spends an excess amount of time reading fraud-related articles in our help desk prior to checkout, that's a negative signal that. Um, this customer is not is has an intent to defraud. Um, we we look at you know thousands of behavioral signals, and then we look at identity, and then we look at the payment signals to assess what is that threshold, um, what is that fraud score, and if it meets our threshold. If it's above our threshold, then we reject it. If it's just around that threshold, then we put it into manual review, and if it's below it, then we we would approve. Wow, that's uh, that's a pretty interesting uh, interesting idea. Um, it's definitely I guess, a uh, big challenge. It's a hard problem. It's definitely because you're offering a real value to your clients, and definitely reducing the risk uh, and making them more comfortable. But you're doing that at your expense. Um, right. But but you somehow found a way to substantially reduce that risk for yourself. So it's uh, it's an interesting interesting uh, proposition that you're that you're offering to your clients, and I guess it maybe makes them more likely to adopt your technology when they can see that it is so value driven, uh, mm -hmm. and and the service seems really great and promising. So I guess I guess. I guess potential clients will see the value and commitment that you're providing and hopefully convert into paying customers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a no-brainer. I think everyone should, uh, should give it a try. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, I guess in terms of the timing, um, you know, recently I, I saw this article that uh, uh, Black Card raised about 2.8 million, and during the pandemic, um, and mm -hmm. and you're offering your your solution during the pandemic. Uh, I guess I guess uh, a service like this is particularly valuable in a time like this, eh? I think so, and I think it's gonna be. Um, I mean, it's gonna be like this for a while. Um, the way I see things is, you know, with the pandemic, prior to the pandemic, you know, approximately 29% of all sales were online for fashion. It's it's just really, really bad or very, very, there, it's, it hasn't been largely adopted in e-commerce yet. Whereas now, nearly 100% of it's all transactions online. And I don't see this stopping anytime soon, even after the pandemic ends. Social distancing is going to happen. It's going to stay well into 2021, 2022. And people are just not going to be comfortable 
going to the mall with a bunch of strangers waiting in line and you know trying on clothes at the dressing room. So I think the timing is is very important for us at this point to kind of make our solution available for these e-commerce merchants um, while all stores are are closed and give them a competitive advantage to their their competitors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, uh, it is true that people don't feel comfortable as much going to retail stores and, you know, touching all kinds of things and trying all kinds of things. Um, and and I guess I guess by the time things go back to normal, maybe more people will become used to online shopping and uh, shopping, uh, buying clothing online. So that statistic from like 29% or something you mentioned might go right. up even when things go back to normal um right because because you know people are now more used to or more comfortable shopping online um was it difficult um raising 2.8 million during the pandemic um it was definitely strange <laughs> it was not what i expected initially i mean i coming into the race i had a plan set out where you know i'll I'll create this massive list of investors that I want to be able to talk to and then schedule them all in this order and, you know, do, do the whole process. That entire plan went out the window as soon as the pandemic ended. I think mm-hmm. it was, um, I mean, a couple of characteristics was um, it was a lot easier to get initial meetings with investors. So at one point we were having maybe like six or seven meetings per day every day for an entire week um, no way and and they're just back to back to back um talking answering the same questions talking about the same things um but it was relatively easy to get those initial meetings but after that things change after the initial meetings it just took a really long time during due diligence um, multiple stakeholders come in um customer reference calls technical interviews they brought like outside experts to kind of assess our tech assess our our product um yeah due diligence took a really long time i think that was the the thing that i didn't expect the most so i guess i guess i guess since this seems like a disruptive idea it was not difficult for you to get uh, the initial interest of uh, of investors um I think I struggled at the beginning. I tried to use my network as much as possible to kind of set up those initial calls. Before Mm -hmm. our lead investor, it was was still a little bit tough um, to be able to connect with the people that we really wanted to connect with that we thought was a really good fit for Blackheart. After we got the lead investor, everything just became really easy. Um, Every email that got sent out, I'd say 90% of the time, it was a, a meeting set. Mm-hmm. So, so you have multiple investors. There is one lead investor, and then, then there are also other investors. That's right. Okay. And uh, was it difficult to agree on the valuation um, of the company? And are you able to disclose the valuation at which you raised? Uh, we're not disclosing the valuation right now, but it was um, we negotiate. We had to negotiate 
so at the very beginning, they came up and gave us the the term sheet uh, at a valuation mm-hmm. that we, you know, it was okay, but it wasn't something that we were expecting. We had to negotiate to to get it to something that both parties were comfortable with. So I guess they had a particular valuation. You had a particular valuation. And obviously, theirs was lower, so you both met somewhere in between. That's right. Yeah, basically, exactly in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I, how how long did the whole um, fundraising process take from start to finish? Um, I think two and a half months. So I started beginning of February, and then we finished around middle of April. So two and a half months. Although before then, there was a lot of prep work. Um, it was maybe middle of January to, or actually first week of January to beginning of February. So three weeks of prep work, just getting the investor lists in order, um, preparing some stuff in the data room. Um, yeah, the pitch deck, all that kind of stuff. Overall, probably three months from start, First week of January to middle of April. And and that includes the time, the due diligence period. That's right. Yes. That is fast. That is that is fast because I've I think I may have previously heard of scenarios where just the due diligence process was was uh, uh, a process which took a lot of time, but you've been doing the whole thing from start to finish, including due diligence in two and a half to three months, that impress- that's impressive and fast. It didn't feel fast. <laughs> it felt like that <laughs> every single day. Oh. Um, but I think most of it was due diligence. I mean, the, the initial decision to kind of get into d- due diligence was maybe two or three, actually maybe four meetings yeah four zoom calls and then for maybe like a month and a half of due diligence but that's 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 interesting so i guess i guess after four meetings i guess after four meetings you had this due diligence but yeah three months is is a good time frame and, and especially and especially in a period like this um raising in a period like this is definitely is definitely you know not easy but i guess i guess you had a solution which is also also ideal for a situation like this so maybe that kind of helped you um in mm-hmm. during the during the due diligence process um it sounds like you know it was particularly uh, uh a, a huge process uh, can you tell us what what were the things that that the investors were curious about and looking into uh, as part of their due diligence? Were they concerned like, okay, the, this company is making a lot of promises in terms of what they can offer? Is this legit? Were they looking into mm-hmm. the technology? Were they looking into forecasts, your your sales predictions, uh, or were they? Did you have any ex- existing clients that they were speaking to? What was their thought process like during their due diligence? Basically everything that you mentioned. Um, it was most, uh, I'd say overall, there was maybe 150 back and forth emails. Um, there was those 
let's say like three or four calls during due diligence. Um, there was customer reference calls where they talked to our customers, two of our customers. There was a technical interview where they brought on a outside expert, a, a very accomplished CTO to kind of discuss and dig into our technology to see if it's, um, you know, if it's, it's solid. And a lot of time was spent on fraud, um, the fraud piece, the fraud model, how everything worked, if it made sense, um, mm -hmm. what are the risks at scale, you know, digging into the finer details of that piece. Um, yeah, financials also went through, let's see what else. I think that might be, and then just like the general, uh, a lot of general business questions about, you know, how, how do you see the company a year from now? Um, what is that evolutionary plan? What's the product roadmap for the next uh, six months to 12 months? Um, what do you, where are you going to spend the money on? What, what are you going to project your runway to be in the worst case scenario with the pandemic um, in the best case scenario and, you know, what you think is realistic? Um, yeah, a, a lot of stuff, pretty much everything. So I guess I guess when you began speaking to investors, you had some paying customers. Yes, we had a couple of customers. Mm -hmm. So so that is uh, interesting. Um, when you have some customers and you have some revenue coming in, you always have that. I mean, I don't know if always, but you have that option where you can take the revenues or profits of the company and you reinvest that back into the company and let it mm -hmm. grow while maintaining the equity that all the equity that you have or you can you know do some fundraising find some investors get a huge sum of capital but also mm -hmm. give away equity um and and you know you as you said you also have to go through the whole uh fundraising process due diligence and now i'm guessing you all you have to report your investors monthly or quarterly uh somehow right. So, so I guess, I guess, you know, the investor money comes at a price. So at that point, like, is, did you have to think about, about this question? Like, do I, you know, let my company grow organically by investing the profits and reinvesting the profits and let it grow organically? Or do you, or do you want to go and take a large capital from an investment and grow it that way? Like, was that a discussion you had internally or with your team? Um, so it was just two of us at that time. So it was just a conversation between two people. But yes, mm -hmm. we talked about it. And I think it was very um, obvious that this is the path that we needed to go down, just because the nature of our business model and our business is, it's important for us to hyperscale now, um, add a lot of fuel to the fire and grow as quickly as possible. Um, and if we were not to take investment money, then going slow is, um, you know, it, it's really not an option. Like it, we just decided early on that we needed to go fast. And this is the type of business that required it. And also to your point about the investors, I mean, they've, I really like our investors. They're, they're extremely, um, I mean, there's, they're, Everyone says they're value add, but um, 
I think a good way to judge if an investor is going to be impactful for your business or not is just to look at how much detail they go into and um, assess them during due diligence because they ask a lot of really smart questions. And after we took on money from them, they were really, um, really, really impactful. So everything from fraud, they brought on a world expert to kind of help us build the architecture for fraud um, to just like merchant sales. They made a ton of introductions on to merchants that we just wouldn't dream of accessing. Basically, you know, our top 10 dream list of merchants, they've been able to, to help us with that. And, you know, there, there is actually a lot of value from taking on investment money from um, people who, who are successful and have the network to be able to help you grow your business. Okay, so your investors, you know, they're not silent investors. They're they're giving you investment and capital, but they are also um, bringing you clients or potential clients through their network, and they also provided you an expert to further develop your product. So they were also adding other value other than cash, and I guess I guess that is something a smart and wise investor should do because you know your success and their success go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, they've, um, I mean, not all the investors. I think overall we had 80 investors, people on oh, the, wow. that came in. Well, most of them came in through uh, Angelus Syndicate. Um, but yeah, in total, 80 individuals, 80 investors. Most of them aren't, uh, most of them are silent investors, but the the ones who own a large equity stake, they've been really, really good. Mm -hmm. So so they're all like individual investors, not institutional investors. Um, most of them are individual investors, yes. Okay, that's pretty interesting. Uh, one thing you mentioned earlier is, you know, when you were uh, doing your prep work and you were building your potential investor list, you were looking for investors who are a good fit for Black Card. So what was your definition or criteria for uh, a good fit? Um, I mean, it's really simple. I think it's, it's only two things. It's if they, they make investments in our range, so they make seed investments, and if they made investments in the past that are um, relevant for Blackheart. So other e-commerce tech, retail tech companies, if they made investments in those, um, there's not a lot of, I mean, for series A, we can, there's a different process for that. We would look into these investors' blog posts or Twitter feeds and see if they kind of align with with uh, the company culture or not. But I mean, for seed investors, there's not a, lot of, not a lot of information out there. So really just those two criteria. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, the amount of money that they invest and and if they have invested previously in e-commerce companies or e-commerce technologies, um, that's right. Yeah, I guess I guess it's definitely you 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 don't just want any investor. You really want uh, the investor who's the right fit. And it seems that you were able to uh, find that. And and I guess I guess uh, having that investment gives you the fuel to grow the company exponentially. And especially when you right. are doing this business in this pandemic time, 
and you know the retail stores are closed and retail shopping is affected you want to build a solution which can try to narrow the gap between online shopping and retail shopping which uh, which is quite amazing um do you have any direct competitors yeah we have competitors there's two direct competitors knock brands and try now and then there's a lot of companies who are doing something similar to try before you buy they're not competitors but they're um they they also play in the try before you buy space stuff like stitch fix trunk club um amazon prime wardrobe things like that mm. so i guess now this particular uh, space is going to grow even more uh because because how because the way retail shopping has been affected but right. uh, it's but it seems that you really on to something and 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 your market share seems to be increasing uh can you disclose some of your uh, high profile clients um we have a bunch of customers who are either direct to consumer or larger international brands the largest one i don't know if i can disclose they're um they're a public company in australia and yeah there's like stay cashmere who sells um cashmere sweaters about $200 a pop really beautiful products um hitched brands who sells jewelry there's frankie and co that sells general apparel um yeah i mean there's it's it's a wide mix if you go to our website there's um there's a couple of logos on there you can check out oh interesting so you also have an australian customer uh, so you're not limiting your business to canada you want to keep it global which is great because you know online sh- shopping happens happens globally and uh, and you're also focusing on jewelry which i think is uh, interesting right yeah it's not um very it's not specific to apparel the qualification criteria that we have for for black card is as long as the products that you're selling is moderate to higher price point lower frequency of purchase and where the customer makes a considered purchase decision then you're a good fit for try before you buy and you know therefore you're probably a good fit for black card mm-hmm. so now that we see you know um the service um of online the online shopping experience has become better and i guess it's getting better so do you think gradually retailers or shopping malls will be replaced or become extinct i don't think they're they'll be extinct i think there will always be a brick and mortar presence but i think most of it will shift over to kind of like an apple store type of environment where it's showcasing products um but transactionally i can see that you know 2021 2022 gradually shift over to mostly online transactions rather than than um in person and brick and mortar mm-hmm. uh do, do you have any patents for your technology no no patents i don't think we um i think our technology isn't the type that requires patents um maybe in the future we'll explore it but it's not something that we've really looked into mm-hmm. and what kind of revenues do you plan to uh reach by the end of this year 
Um, we want to try to get to three to four million, um, or that's at least what we told our investors. That's uh, that's our roadmap anyway. And I think um, after you know we've we've gotten our investment for a month or two months now. Um, things are looking good. Things are moving in that direction. All right, that's amazing. Uh, well, Donnie, it has been very nice speaking with you and learning about Black Card and the uh, solution that you're working on. And thank you for sharing your your experience with us. Really appreciate the time. Thanks. Perfect. So, uh, can you share your website uh, with the listeners? Sure. It's just that www.blackcart.com. That's uh, B-L-A-C-K, like the color, and cart, like the shopping cart. Perfect. Uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this uh, particular episode and you're able to learn from uh, from uh, Black Card's experience in fundraising and how they're trying to change the online uh, shopping experience. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Zonecast and stay tuned for more episodes. Mm-hmm.